Well, I wish I had a fan right on me because I plan on preaching today. Don't let me give you too high expectations. I plan to sort of preach today. I actually don't know what's better. We'll see. <laughs> I'm going to stop ad-libbing here. Let me open this up with a word of prayer. Creator God, you have filled our world with your spirit. You have formed us out of dust, out of nothing, that we may be one with you. Teach us what it means to be united, to be drawn together in love, and to seek against those things that pull us apart through violence or selfishness. Teach us the way of your peace and your shalom. And as we listen to your scripture today, may the words that I say not reflect me, but may reflect your spirit's will for us as a people. As always, as a community, may we be searching not for our own will, but seeking to find out where you are taking us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I am a member, and maybe some of you are as well, of the Oregon Trail generation. Have you heard of this? Have you heard of this? Thank you. Yes. Uh, the Oregon Trail generation. Well, if we were going to be going according to the more established generations, this would not be one of them. I would technically be a millennial, the most pilloried of all generations. Yeah, well, see, boomers can, sorry, you know what, I did not come up here to start a generation war, because I don't think Paul would like that. I've come here to reconcile. So I love you, I love you, boomer. I did actually have a whole chunk in there about boomers and millennials, and I cut it out. And so I thank you, Bob, for giving me that opportunity to be gracious. I appreciate it. Anyway, all that to say, born near the dawn of the millennial generation, I sometimes like to call myself an elder millennial. But I actually typed up part of this sermon while listening to Soundgarden, so I think that pushes me back into Generation X. I'm not exactly sure. Nevertheless, if you were born between 1977 and 1985, and I am squarely in the middle of that, like me, rather than identifying fully with Generation X or with millennials, you might more fully align with the so-called micro-generation called the Oregon Trail generation. It actually has other names. Some people call it Xennials. I don't like that. It's just smashing together two different generations. I want something more descriptive. Some people have called it the Catalano generation. I don't know if we have any fans of my so-called life, but that actually does resonate with me quite a bit, even though I just watched it in reruns on MTV. Now, it may be easy to start labeling micro-generations here and there, but I do think there really is a salient cultural moment that defines this specific group uh, and its identity in a unique way that maybe, uh, that maybe justifies this division. This is perhaps the last generation that can claim a largely analog childhood, but found their adolescence and young adulthood enmeshed in a seismic technological shift to a digital world cell phones, the internet, home computers. It was a major shift to think about what my life was like, and I'm sure it is the same thing for everyone, but this massive shift, the things that I can remember, the analog childhood I can remember, and the digital young adulthood that I remember is, was something. I remember no cell phones. I remember there being no cell phones, which to my children is just, wow, that is an amazing thing and not being able to be reached at every single moment. 
I kind of miss that. I remember not worrying that anything I do could be posted on the internet, that maybe the worst thing that would happen is one of my friends would tell their parents. Though I was an early adopter of Friendster, MySpace, and LiveJournal, don't go look up my LiveJournal, I remember, I think it's still there, and it's very teen angsty, I remember going to record stores to buy CDs just based on the cover art, their record label, and what bands they toured with, or I heard they toured with. But then I also remember Napster putting all those record stores out of business. I was also of the age where I, th I think I had the prime use of Napster, the amount of illegally downloaded. It wasn't illegal, right? It wasn't illegal until they declared it illegal. Whatever, I'm not here to justify that either. I downloaded a lot of MP3s, so maybe I'm repenting, I don't know. But I remember no computer at home, and I remember when we got one, and the sound that the modem made, that awful sound when I picked up the phone. How my internet chat rooms would be ruined when my mom just picked it up and didn't ask if I was using it, the line. Well, all of that is interesting, but the Oregon Trail video game, I think this is a, a really good example because it really was a serious marker of this shift, an early marker of this shift. I remember the brand new completed computer lab in my elementary school when I was in third grade. Actually, they, tr they transferred this room that was like the backstage in the cafeteria and put a bunch of computers in there, kind of last minute. And it was filled with Apple IIEs, to which we would flock to, of course, play with those really actual floppy disks. We'd play Oregon Trail. Now, this is a game, of course, that builds on the spirit of manifest destiny and says little about the destructive westward colonial expansion. That should be remembered, of course, but one of the major things I remember, as a kid, you don't think about those things, but, well, of course, after the fun of hunting, which I was really bad at, but I enjoyed doing, and how willing I was to risk my own loved one's health in the game for speed and points. Besides all that, what I remember was the sense of how difficult all of this was, how difficult the journey was, at least it seemed that way. I mean, how many times did I actually make it to Oregon? Not many. I hear there was like this waterfall rafting ride or something. I did not, I don't even think I got there once. I mean, I always, there was always some, some problem, a fire, right? Most of my digital loved ones and I would die of hunger because I was so bad at hunting. Or, of course, of any number of diseases, measles, cholera, and of course, dysentery. You have died of dysentery. That is a, it's a disconcerting thing to read as a, as a third grader. And then there were the people, of course, that drowned fording rivers. I lost many a family member fording rivers. We have a lot uh, of talk, maybe I'm, you see the shift here. We have had a lot of talk acknowledging the different struggles of this pandemic season. And perhaps the journey itself feels a little bit like this. Perhaps it feels more like fording through a river, specifically that one, or wading through a rushing stream. You think about walking through air versus walking through water, trying to hold all your possessions and oxen. I don't know how well oxen can swim. But there is the extra attention and effort, the slowness, the pressure, the anxiety. I wonder if that's a lot of what we feel in Ephesians, in the passage that we read from Ephesians today, Paul talks quite a lot about a journey as well, about walking. Though it may be easy to miss, 
Paul, on over half a dozen occasions, appeals to the believers in Ephesus, this church that he's writing to, to walk one way or another, that they are to walk. Now, this, however, is usually translated as to live. And that's right. Walking is a metaphor for living. But there's an activeness to the walking that we want to emphasize, right? There's an activeness to the walking that we think about. We are called to walk, to be active within the world. Thanks, fast team. But we are called to be, uh, that sounded sarcastic. It wasn't. I mean, really, thanks. It wasn't like, okay, boomer. Thanks, fast team. We are called to walk and live. In fact, in our passage for today, it's just six verses, but there are two things that Paul asks of those believers in Ephesus. He asks them, one, walk wisely. Two, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Walk wisely, be filled with the Holy Spirit. At times, I think about this walking like fording a river. It is easier to just stay on one bank, for sure. It's easier to not do it. (laughs) It's easier to not ford the river. To keep the status quo, the ways that we have been formed, to not find new ways to walk, to walk out of those ways. Because a lot of times, those ways that we have been formed are comfortable. The status quo is comfortable. For those of us that have privilege, it is comfortable. We prefer our low taxes and our well-manicured lawns. Not, nothing against well-manicured lawns. I really like Rob's California, California plant lawn. I, the Snickers have that going on as well. Just, But we are called to not stay on the one side. There's a lot of problems with this metaphor, but I like, I like certain elements of it. We are called, and Paul uses this phrase of God's calling out very distinctively and importantly. There is a calling from God. God is calling to us. Maybe perhaps on the other side of the bank, though there's issues with that metaphor as well, but we are called to journey, to walk, to be active down what is a different path. I mean, you think of Jesus, what Jesus says, you've got to, I always think of Dave singing, you've got to walk that narrow way, right? Jesus calls us to walk a narrow way. The easy way is not the way that we often, or is the way that is easy, the way that we often think about going, but we are called to walk a different way and, of course, that journey may be difficult. Any, any journey of change and transformation is difficult. But as Paul says here, and I think this is right, and this is hard for us, we hear things when Paul says things like, these are evil times, and it's kind of embarrassing. We don't like Paul being, it sounds judgmental or, or something, right? These are evil times. The days are evil. That sounds really like apocalyptic and weird and cultish, maybe. But I think that it's a statement that deserves some thought. I mean, it's in Ephesians. Paul said it for a reason. Because it is an admission of the difficulty in the violence that does surround us. To not be able to admit that and see it, to what extent that it is there, is to not want to wade in the river, not to walk, not to lament, not to see the things around us that do need justice and peace. And those are real, and we know that, and we see it. So the violence that's around us is not, of course, just around us. It is something that has formed our own souls as well. It is not something that is just apart from us. It is something that we have been nurtured into, something that we seek to walk away from. There is a recognition, and one could imagine here, a room for lament. Perhaps that is what Paul is saying here. 
Now, we are moving towards a thanksgiving. There's a, a distinct thanksgiving in this passage, and I think it's right for it to be there. But Paul does not short-circuit the difficulty of what's around us and the lament of what's around us. Paul himself, of course, knows suffering. I think it's easy for us to look at this and think of, we, I think we have this view of Paul as like this academic theologian because he's been presented to us really poorly by academic theologians, right? And so we just see Paul in that image. Paul is a pastor, and Paul is a, he's a bivocational pastor, and he is a traveler, and he is a frequently incarcerated and beaten and suffering person. And I think that is something that we should think about. And Paul himself does know suffering and writes this letter in Ephesus, to Ephesus while he's incarcerated. Now, as Soon Chan Ra has so wonderfully laid out in his book, The Prophetic Lament. Many of you have read this book. It's a great book. I would recommend it. The American church itself in general has a lament deficiency. I'm not making any accusations about us or any claims about us, but this is a general thing that we see in the church at large, at least, is this a lament deficiency. Popular songs and hymns, if we were to follow Paul's recommendation to sing songs and hymns to each other, fo focus almost exclusively on celebration. We may not feel like we're celebrating a lot these days. Maybe we're moving towards it. But this is a strategy that affirms the status quo and focuses on the spiritual as opposed to the not real sufferings of our bodies and of creation. It can be, lead to an escapism. Paul points throughout this letter to the Ephesians, however, to the real struggle that is happening in the world. Paul does not move past that. He calls us to thanksgiving, but not to circumvent the need for lament or a clear-eye understanding of what is going on around us. But he points us as well in that to a perspective that sees God and the character of God as behind what is happening in the world. And if we are to have hope, it is not in ourselves, but it is in God. Now, this is clear, at least as Paul says, a hope not in ourselves or in our own ingenuity or in our own plans to save the world. And a lot of us do have those. But of a hope in the God who has time and time again proven herself faithful and merciful. We walk not in confidence in ourselves. We walk, right? We walk, and it's important that we're walking. We walk not in confidence in ourselves, but in humility and in confidence in the character of God. And there is some precedent that I found for this in this book by Ra. And Ra notes this balance too. What is missing in the church, he says, is the proper balance of lament and celebration. It is the proper holistic look. I don't think that the American church tends to side on erring towards too much lament, but I guess in theory that could happen too where we just focus on lament and it is not balanced out with the hope that we have. Even this idea of praising God isn't necessarily celebration, but it is something that interrupts our perception of the way the world is running. So there is this balance that focuses on the full spectrum of ourselves. And that's what's important, the full spectrum of ourselves, intellectually, emotionally, in the ways that we exist. We offer all of that to God not just our thoughts, as can be easily done by me. I, maybe I'm 
I'm confessing here, especially somebody with, a, with advanced degrees in theology often finds a way to think about things a lot more than to engage the whole spectrum of oneself in those things. But as we wade through the river, like Peter walking on the water, right? As you think of Peter walking on the water, what does Peter do? Peter looks down, he loses focus, his focus and he sinks. Well, when he loses his focus, it is something that is easy for us to do as well. It is easy to look down and simply see the water and the despair and the difficulty. And rightly, sometimes that is all that we see. And that can be okay. It is good to lament and to focus on it. But that is perhaps why we don't ford this river alone. We ford it together. I can think about how many times being a part of a community of faith, I have relied on the faith of those who are part of that community to bring me through in lots of ways, that my faith is not something that is simply a possession of my own, that is something that we hold together. Lament is our struggle through the river because in spite of all that we are faced with, we do ultimately hope in God's character, in God's faithfulness to save us. Ra's book is actually a heartfelt commentary on the book of Lamentations that feel good summer reading the book of Lamentations. And while the lamenter of Lamentations mourns and cries out about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, Ra does note that interspersed within this, there is a change of tone, specifically in chapter 3, not one that cancels lament, but one that frames it. In Lamentations 3.21, Ra points that this note of hope peeks through and where the lamenter says, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What does he call to mind and what does he remember? What memory shifts his thinking? Reframes it. It is the memory of God's unchanging character. And he goes on for verses to talk about the faithfulness of God. And it is perhaps this hope in the faithfulness of God that fuels the strength of his lament. If this is true, why is this the way that it is? Throughout seemingly unanswerable suffering, the lamenter is not able to be moved from their hope in God and who God demonstrates herself to be. But at the end of Lamentations, of course, there is no resolution, and the author ends in a minor key, so to speak. But the journey through the river is not a lying down. It is not moving into the river and then just being absorbed and washed and drowned in it, so to speak. But it is a struggle that is fueled by this hope, a very tensive hope, a hope for God's people that Israel will be restored, that God will bring justice, that the temple will be rebuilt. This is what the author of Lamentations faces. In real, I mean, they were deported to a foreign territory, something I've never experienced, but something maybe to learn from. So do you remember the passage that we read from Isaiah today? There is, yes, good. It was a good one. I like that one. Isaiah 60. Isaiah is speaking of this same hope. It's almost as if Isaiah is answering or completing or continuing, at least, the thought of the lamenter. Arise and shine, your light has come. Isaiah is speaking of the fulfillment of the hope that, that the lamenter had, of the restoration of Israel and Jerusalem I think it's here that we have to understand what Paul is also saying to these believers. I think Paul 
comes at this perspective as well. Now, Isaiah was speaking of a time, prophesying of a time that he was sure would happen. This is in concert with the character of God. God is this faithful one, and this is what will happen. God proclaims that it will be true. Paul believes that that has happened in Jesus. We still are, the kingdom is near, and we still wade through the river, but Paul has this hope because of what he sees in Jesus. Indeed, right before our passage, there's this beautiful resonating hymn that the early churches would sing when celebrating baptism. I should have included it in our passage for today. I'm sorry that I didn't, but there it is for you. And so wonder, imagine these words being read to you after as you're coming up from the water of baptism. Wake up, O sleeper. Get up from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Come up out of the water into new life. Still, that does not circumvent the journey. Paul reminds them of how they used to walk, guided by what Paul calls the rule of destructive spiritual power. In the, uh, this constant frame of walking, this constant talking about walk this way, Paul asks them to remind, to remind themselves of where they came from, that they were walking guided by these destructive spiritual powers these are the destructive forces of the world. This reality that we live amongst, this violence, they are systemic. They hang over our head, but they are also written on our hearts. For we do not merely walk in the ways of those powers, but we have been formed from our birth, thrown into a world to trust them as our guide. And we need reshaping. At least that's what Paul would say. To trust them as our guide, militarism, nationalism, capitalism, patriarchy, homophobia, whiteness, the power of greed to structure a world, and violence to dominate it. I think this is what is at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Not a list of commands, but a way to rethink how we relate to the world, to undo these powers. We are called no longer to walk in these ways within ourselves and within the world, to fight systems and to renew ourselves. We walk wisely as we walk alongside. So we walk wisely. Remember, this is that first command that Paul has in Ephesians 5.15. What are we to do? We are to walk wisely. How do we walk wisely? We walk wisely when we walk alongside those who are combating and fighting against this greed protecting water. I think of the water protectors, obviously. Seeking land rights for the dispossessed. Striving to build a world found on mutual responsibility, care, and I would add, and radical democracy. A radical care for people and creation. And Paul would say, in this walking, in the waiting, the, not the waiting, but the waiting through the river alongside one another, is where we find that spirit, our second commandment, where we encounter life, a second ask from Paul. It is there in our lives of walking and worshiping together in this river that we are filled by the spirit. So as Paul continues, he ups the game a little bit though. And while they must remember that they are to walk differently, it is not simply enough to find a new path let me level you up a little. But even more so, Paul claims that we have been so formed into this reality that what is necessary, that in Christ we become new creations. Paul believes this. 
and I lay this out for you to consider. What does that mean? That is, we are so embedded in the destructive and exploitative powers around us that we must effectively be created again. That's what Paul thinks. That what happens in Jesus is paradigm shifting in that way. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 that we were each created as poiema. Now, obviously that is Greek, but that word is translated in our translation as God's accomplishment or God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Is what he, that's our purpose. So if you have a works-faith issue, Paul says real clearly in Ephesians 2, we are created to do good works. And there's some nuance there that we should work out. But this word poiema is really interesting to me, maybe just because it's so close to this English equivalent poem, poiema poem, that I like to imagine that we are in this new creation, we become even as kind of immaterial as it is, though it is material, that we are God's poem loved and crafted. We are her verse spoken in care and faithfulness into the world for which she cares so much. And it is maybe the fragility and dissipating nature of spoken words that reminds me another key uh, point of this walking in wisdom. As Paul wishes us to walk in wisdom, what does it mean? And that is humility. We are God's handiwork. We give thanks to God as her handiwork because we recognize that we are dependent for everything on God and that all things are God's and thus all things are for the goodness, joy, and care for all of God's people and creation. But perhaps my favorite, so humility, solidarity, I guess these are all elements of reframing proper cosmic perspective. All of these are elements of walking wisely, I think that Paul gets at here. But perhaps my favorite rhetorical turn that Paul makes is when he starts talking somewhat mystically about light. I like this really wherever it comes up. This is really good fodder for meditating. So go home and meditate on God is light and how that interacts with you. You're welcome. We are called, Paul says, to be children of light. We're also called to be children of God, the God who is inapproachable light that dwells among us in Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean to have, by the way, part of mysticism is that I don't get to explain what all that means, that it is something to dwell on, but it is a, it's a entry point into something. What does that mean? What does it mean to have this light shine on us? It's easy to simply think of light as revealing things, right? Light is the, what is it? Sunshine is the best disinfectant. Light is the best, whatever. You've heard this one, right? Yeah. I'm getting lots of no shaking, so I think I said it right. Thank you. I got, I got a good yes there. So it reveals it when you see injustice. I think this is right. I think there's something about this, and it's very clearly in the passage that Paul talks about. But it's easy to simply think about it as revealing things, being able to see things. But I think here, the light goes deeper. It changes our very being. I think light in this instance is something that comes on us and changes our DNA, who we are, our nurturing. Paul says this rather simply. Once you were darkness, once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. 
Now, I'm a person that likes a lot more nuance than that straight kind of bifurcation of people. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. But I do like the simplicity of that. You know, it's catchier when it's simple, right? Once you were darkness, but now you are light with this key prepositional phrase, in the Lord. You yourself are not light. You are light in the Lord, right? This kind of goes back for me to that sermon that Melissa gave not too long ago where she talked, to, was two weeks ago? She talked about what united us and that being Jesus. And that's the reality. We are united in Jesus. All of our hopes of reconciliation is not that just that we get a whole bunch of people that disagree about things, but we all believe in Jesus, so we're good. No, we're united because we are being transformed and following that journey of Jesus together. What unites us is following in the path of Jesus' justice and being formed by that, being open and, hu and humble to repentance when we need transformation, all in Jesus. That's what Jesus unites us in. And so things like Jew and Gentile are no longer things that divide us. Boomer and Xennial and Oregon Trail generation, millennial, right? Those are the things that don't divide us anymore. This rather mystical statement reminds me of the somewhat provocative statement from an early church father, Athanasius, that I actually mentioned in a talk back a, couple, a few weeks ago to Melissa's sermon. God became human that humans might become God. I think it's like, oh, this sounds like polytheism or something. This is a orthodox, not heretical church father, maybe representing more of the Eastern tradition of the church. Not really at this point, he's just part of the church. But I think that there is something very important and meaningful here about what it means to be a people of God's peace and shalom as well. Because all of these things about, that we talk about, all of these attributes of God, love and life and peace, all comes down in my mind to a uni this unified idea of being united somehow with God in shalom. God and Jesus is in the business of transforming our very nature. I think that. I believe that. I wish I had more evidence for it sometimes, but I believe it. This is shalom, that we might be united and be those seeking to unite all things in peace, to be a people not to conquer the world for this, but to be a people that seeks to be for the world in care within the world. Whereas the powers and principalities that Paul has had us talking about throughout Ephesians that we are fighting against, and Lisa Thornton will be talking about the armor of God next week, so I'm looking forward to that. I think she has an Anabaptist commentary for that, so it won't be too militaristic. Maybe it'll be very, who knows? I'm not, gonna, I'm not putting any reins on her. But the powers and principalities rule by dividing. They rule through violence and acquisition and selfishness. They rule like Gordon Gecko telling us that greed is good and that is what brings us progress. And we believe that it is good. And we watch this, and I will come back to this later as we get this report from the UN Climate Change Committee that this attitude that brings us progress is destroying us. Right? That this is happening right now. But we believe it's good because we have been formed in and we are finding it very difficult to remove ourselves from this reality, to walk in a different way. God's vision, however, is that we might all be united and ultimately united with God in our whole selves, in care, in mutual dependence, in one another, realizing we are not separate. This is somewhat embarrassing. Do you see this plant? Do you, no? Right. But what I mean is, do you see this pot where a plant used to be? There's something like hanging over, right? I've had this for a matter of weeks. 
It was a full plant when I got it. This plant was a birthday gift that I had in my office. My birthday was not that long ago. So that I had in my office and it took me a matter of weeks to utterly destroy it. I am, I am global capitalism in this metaphor. I will say that the tag sticking out here of the soil says very, very clearly, place, quote, place in a bright, sunny spot. But if you have ever seen my office, you will know, at least in the summer, to keep it cool, it is not a very sunny place. The windows are all shut. The shades are all down. And this plant needed light to grow. The light that enters this plant gives it life. And I think that that metaphor helps us more than just thinking about light as something that shines around us. But light is something that enters us and shapes us. And this happens with humans too. And go get some vitamin D. It's very important for you. But this plant, I, I destroyed this plant. I, I deprived it of life. And I, this is my repentance. But the plant has life, but it is not simply subsumed by the light. It does not simply just become light, right? But the light is, brings it in, fills it, maybe becomes one with it. We maybe are all plants who need to soak in God's light. I'm going to move this now because it's kind of depressing. I'm going to get better at raising plants, I think. So, and perhaps this connects right to Paul's second call in this passage. I already alluded to this once, but the second the second command. The second ask. Be filled with the Spirit. That's what, it, that's what Paul says. In this walking, all of this, this solidarity and humility and wisdom comes with, happens by, and needs to be accompanied with the Spirit. As if we have control over, that's the first thing I read, is like, be filled with the Spirit. Like, we have control over that. Spirit come here, I'm ready, I'm, I'm willing to be filled, right? I love it, but I also don't want to be too presumptuous. The Spirit does blow where she wills, right? This is, Jesus is very clear about this, but the Spirit does will and want to meet us. What is remarkable about this passage, I think, though, and it's specifically about this passage, but the Spirit's presence here is not defined in individualistic terms. Not that we are not filled with the Spirit as persons in our connection with God, but we so naturally think of it that way because we're very individualistic people. That's something I think we all re recognize we're fighting with. But the Spirit is not defined in those ways. This seeking for personal infilling and gifts, at least here in this passage. But the Spirit here is someone that fills us and this is actually really clear in the passage. The Spirit is, I should have had those Bibles out, right? So that you could be, all the people at home have their, their internet Bibles open. I know it, but ours are on the thing. But I'm sure that you want to be checking me on this. But what it says is, what Paul says is the Spirit fills us as a body, not me, not you, singular, that she is that which binds us, right? And moves us and holds us together. That we are filled with the Spirit when we speak to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual stuff. This is what Paul seems to say in this instance is how the Spirit comes among us is when we open through nurturing each other in worship. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit and to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I actually don't know exactly what this looks like, 
Have any of you had a chance yet to watch the Apple TV series Schmigadoon? Right? I just started it like two days ago, so it made it in here. No, yesterday. I was up real late finishing this, watching Schmigadoon. It's a new series about a couple who gets trapped in a musical. <laughs> it sounds like a horror movie, but it's not. It's a comedy, apparently, said by someone who doesn't particularly love musicals. I know that doesn't go over well here. I know we are a musical bunch, right? Oh, I expected Jennifer was holding on to that one. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for your honesty with me. Right, but I don't think Paul's, is Paul envisioning something like that? I, I, I don't think so, probably not. Though I will say that my kids are still singing the songs from VBS every single day. Noah doesn't stop singing every move I make, right? There's another one. Oh, and the fruit of the spirit. She's got them down. She just repeats them over and over again. She loves that. So that's good. And you know what? Maybe that is an example. I'll ad lib here. That is an example of how we worship together and how the spirit comes among us and how we nurture each other and train each other to be something. It is a small example, but it is something that we can do together. And of course, we can think much bigger than that in the ways that what we consider to be worship and what we do together as worshiping God. But there is something about the way that we do worship together, praising God together, keeping our focus on this perspective, and that in doing so, we are nurturing each other, helping each other grow in the spirit, in life, in the light of God that makes us new, the light, right, that we may become God, may become one with God. So with all of that, I want to call us at least I would say, to this kind of worship. So I've taken a meandering thing. I think this all relates together, but I want to call us, what Paul, I think, calls us to is this sort of worship, this kind of sitting in the light. The sitting in the light doesn't work well with my fording a river metaphor, but Paul uses lots of mixed metaphors, so just go with me on it. This sort of walking wisely, this wading through the river in wholeness, in our whole being, in the humility of knowing that God's faithfulness is trustworthy, and not something that we control and worthy of thanksgiving, even if we also do this in lament, as we should. Today, as I mentioned earlier, though, I am particularly heavy laden by the UN Commission on Climate Change report that just came out. Not that it said anything that wasn't expected. Maybe it said some things, but the general gist of it, I think I've understood for a long time. But I mourn that the systems of the world the spiritual powers of this age that Paul is talking about, those that are over our heads, those that occupy government buildings and executive boardrooms, and that which has been imprinted on our souls, that it seems incapable of doing anything to stop the consuming and destroying of our very life. I mourn as the author of Lamentations did, with no real sense of resolution, I have no hope in the powers of this world, and that's probably okay, but I have no hope in the powers of this world to solve this, but I pray that it can be solved, of course. I don't want them to not solve it. I don't want us to not find a way to fix it. But as the lamenter of lamentations, I still remember this, that God is faithful. And I recognize the tension and unresolved feeling of that saying that, in that couple can bring. And I, I don't mean to say that it's fulfilling, that it answers everything. This is a statement of thanksgiving that exists not to cover my lamentation, 
but to be alongside it. Maybe to reframe it, perhaps irreconcilably. And perhaps it is that hope that makes our lament all the more intense amid that tension because we believe that this God does exist and things can be different. It is good to hold this intention, or it is necessary to hold an intention, even to take the next step with Paul that these powers have been conquered by Jesus, to believe that. And I do. Even as we live among a world with so much to lament. And in this, I praise God. In this, it is our hope that gives us appropriate humility to work alongside those who are also combating those powers. And I'm trusting Lisa will give us some strategies for combating those powers next week. Those who are seeking wholeness and peace, those within the world where the spirit is moving, that rather than tearing apart our world, they are acquiring, or acquiring, they are working for wholeness and peace and justice. In this, I believe we are called to walk wisely and worthily, to walk. I think it's so much, it's so much better than just to say to live. To live can be so passive. I live, I, I live and in the pandemic, I've lived pretty passively in my, well, it's been, it's been something. But I stayed in my house a lot. But to walk is to not escape, but to move about within the world. That we are to seek to nurture each other, singing praise to God, and praise to God does not paper over lamentations, and it is not simply celebration, but it is a recognition of God's character amid that. That we are called to worship God with our whole selves. I'll say this, I mean, this feels like a little tack on, but we are called to worship God with our whole selves, our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our wills, our guts, even our emotions in ancient Greek anthropology, all your emotions were in your guts. I think that might be more right if any of you have experienced extreme emotions and had some stomach aches. Maybe that's where they got it from. But our whole selves to come out of our heads and into our bodies. It is okay to get lost in feeling sometimes, I think, as well, and to meet God behind our rational selves, to sway a little when we sing, to cry a little, to love a little, to leave open that space for the spirit to move and for us to nurture each other as whole beings. It is okay to wake our whole selves up to this God in all the complexity that we find ourselves. And so I'll finish with the words of that early baptism song. And maybe this can be your, maybe this be your baptism reflection for the week. Wake up, O oh sleeper. I think some of you needed that. Yeah. Get up from the dead and Christ will shine on you. The light of Christ will shine on you. And that is a promise. And all praise be to God, creator. Amen.